Uh, But let's pray. Let's ask for God's help as we come to his word. Gracious Father, it has been a rich feast of encouragement already tonight as we've sung your praises and as we've seen uh, and heard from Ryan. Uh, And we long now that in your great kindness, you would enable me in my weakness to speak clearly and truthfully as I should. Uh, Father, nothing I say can be of help unless your spirit is at work in me. Uh, And nothing we hear from your word will make sense unless your spirit works in each of us. So please be kind now, Father, that we would see and savour the Lord Jesus in all his glory through his word, that we would respond with joyful faith. We ask in his name. Amen. Uh, Well, I wonder if you know the story of uh, Paul Curtis. Uh, Paul fell off a ladder uh, while cleaning his gutters uh, and took himself to hospital with uh, neck pain, uh, but after a brief checkup, he was essentially sent home with Panadol. Uh, as the pain persisted for the next few days, he returned to hospital, uh, an x-ray was taken, and they told him that uh, paracetamol would not fix the problem because his neck was in fact broken. Uh, you know, so we, we get this, right? It's actually very dangerous, potentially devastating uh, if we get a diagnosis wrong. Uh, you know, how many times have we gone through this over the last few years? Is that just a cough or is that COVID? Uh, is that a runny nose or is it COVID? Uh, you know, do you need a tissue or a mask and 14 days away from me, please? Uh, we get that, right? But it's actually equally, perhaps if not more dangerous, uh, more devastating to get the diagnosis right but the course of action wrong. Uh, consider 82-year-old Austrian lady, we'll call her Mary. Uh, just last year, she had a serious infection in her leg and after uh, several failed treatments, uh, it needed to be amputated. The surgery went well. It was uh, scheduled, successful. She was on the recovery, but then two days later, it was actually Mary herself who noticed they had amputated the wrong leg. Uh, Last week in Mark 7, uh, Jesus gave us the diagnosis that we all need to hear. The diagnosis in his conversation with the religious leaders was over the issue of defilement and purity before God, uh, over what's going to lead us into the good life of cleanliness and flourishing in our relationship with God. And Jesus said, The issue was clear. It's not a matter of eating and drinking, not what you touched or who you spent time with. It's about your heart. What comes out of your heart is what defiles you and makes you unclean with God. It's there, verse 23. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. That was the diagnosis. So what will we do with that? What will it look like if we accept the radical diagnosis of our heart? Uh, How will we know if we have responded rightly both to the diagnosis and to the one who has diagnosed us? And Mark does not leave us to guess. As we move from the diagnosis to the response that Jesus commends in the next two events that Bridget just read for us. And in these events, I think there is an inherent warning for us, especially for those of us that are very familiar with Jesus, perhaps even in agreement with Jesus and what he offers, but still actually fail to give him the response that he calls for and would see our hearts cured and lead us 
to the life of flourishing in relationship with God. Uh, No doubt at the end of his conversation with the Jews last week, uh, Jesus would have had some clenched fists and angry faces looking his way. Uh, And the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, they're angry. And so it might be why in verse 24, in the passage we're beginning to look at now, uh, Jesus actually leaves the area. Uh, Maybe he was just looking for rest. That's why he doesn't want anyone to know about it. Uh, The crowds are intense and following him, especially since the feeding of the 5,000. Maybe he's laying low due to rising tension with Herod and the Jews. We're not told, but we are told where he goes. He heads to the region of Tyre, uh, which is modern-day Lebanon. And just in the off chance that your ancient Palestinian geography is not so good, there's a map for you. Uh, Notice that Jesus, heading out of Galilee and Capernaum up towards Tyre, he is making the significant decision to cross the border out of Israel and head into Gentile territory, where he's probably going to be for the next six months or so and in the chapters of Mark that follow. And while he's in the region of Tyre, which as you can see, it's not that far from Capernaum, uh, it actually was a big shift in culture and in loyalty. Uh, Tyre in the Old Testament has a long history of conflict with Israel. Uh, The first century historian Josephus, he describes the people of Tyre as notoriously our bitterest enemies. And so going there might seem a surprising choice for Jesus, the Jew, but the whole thing actually is quite familiar if you can remember Elijah. Uh, You see, Elijah, he had issues with Israel, with God's people too, and God sent him uh, to a similar region where he then encountered the widow of Zarephath who provided him with bread. And so Jesus is now entering, leaving Israel into a Gentile territory, just like Elijah, and he too encounters a Gentile woman. Uh, So verse 24, Jesus has entered a house, and although he wants some solitude, uh, his reputation has preceded him even into the Gentile territory. And so verse 25, instead, immediately after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit came and fell at his feet. And did you notice, as Bridget read it, in verse 26, there's a big focus on her non-Jewish identity. She is a Greek, a Gentile. She's born in Phoenicia from Syria, which tells you, in case it wasn't clear, she's a Gentile in a Gentile area with a Gentile daughter who has an unclean spirit, a demon in her. And do you notice how connected it is that fresh off his controversy with the Jewish leaders in verses 1 to 23, Jesus is now uh, in a region that's unclean. And he encounters an unclean woman with an unclean daughter who has an unclean spirit in her. Do you see what's happening? And why she's come to Jesus is actually really obvious. She's heard about him, heard of his power and miracles. No doubt she would have heard about Jesus casting out the legion of demons that we heard about back in Mark chapter 5. And so she comes to Jesus desperate for help for her daughter. And we see her desperation, right? Verse 25, immediately she comes. Verse 26, she was asking him to cast the demon 
out of the daughter. Now, it's very matter-of-fact, right? But you can picture it, can't you? She didn't just come up and say, Jesus, if it's uh, not too much trouble and if you're not too busy, I have a daughter and she's got a bit of a problem. No, like you can picture her desperation, can't you? She keeps doing it. She repeatedly does it time and time again, coming to Jesus. In Matthew's account of this same story, she comes to him so often, so frequently, that the disciples are like, just get rid of her. And no doubt she knows what's going on. She knows that by the standards of the day, by the normal relating between Jew and Gentile, by the reality of the history of tension and conflict between them, she is unclean. She is unwelcome to approach a devout Jew. But she comes all the same, begging him to help her daughter. And you get it, don't you, right? I'm a parent. Uh, I get upset when they take too long to give my kids fries. Like we, we kind of understand her desperation, but is that all she is? Is she just a desperate parent looking for any help she can get, regardless of where it comes from? Well, we actually find out very quickly through Jesus' very surprising response to her. Perhaps it even shocked you what he said to her. What did you think as Bridget read it out? Verse 27, he said to her, let the children be fed first because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. You see, what's going on here? Jesus, for some reason, seems very cold, confusing, confronting, even offensive. Where is his usual compassion and warmth? As one commentator said, where is my Jesus and what have you done with him here? So what do you make of what Jesus says to her? This mother comes to him desperate and needy for her little girl. And Jesus says, should I take what's for the children and give it to the dogs? But what Jesus gives her is actually, I think, essentially a parable. Our children is the common description for Israel throughout the Old Testament. And although you might be thinking in your mind an $8,000 cute cavoodle uh, that essentially sleeps in the bed and has its run of the house, uh, in first century Palestine, dogs were pr- pretty much just unclean wild scavengers. They are the epitome of unclean, uh, hence that the term dog was used as a derogatory term for Gentiles by Jewish people. And so Jesus essentially is saying to her, shall I take what is for Israel and give it to an unclean Gentile? What do you think about Jesus in this passage? See, I think we struggle with what Jesus is doing here, uh, mainly because I think we develop this idea of what I would call a therapeutic Jesus, where Jesus really just essentially exists to meet our needs and make our life better. But all throughout Mark, we've seen that Jesus' priority, it's not the healings and it's not the exorcisms. It's preaching the kingdom of God. Jesus is the Messiah, the promised son of David, the one who would rescue Israel, promised throughout the prophets. He's on a mission not to make life healthier and easier, but actually address the defilement of our hearts, which he will do through his death and resurrection. And so I think we're naturally shocked and maybe even offended by the way he responds to her. 
But hopefully you can remember in Mark chapter 4, Jesus explained to us why he uses parables. That he gives them intentionally to divide. That for some, the parables will bring the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others, they are just riddles that make no sense. And we see that in her reply. You see, while we hear offence or even apathy from Jesus, she hears opportunity. Verse 28, she replied to him, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. You see, she hears the word first in what Jesus says to her, first let the children eat, and she's like, there's a chance then, right? She understands the parable is about priority, not exclusion. Uh, Paul says, Romans 1, that the gospel is first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. You see, Israel does hold a theological and a temporal priority of the Messiah's work, but not an exclusive claim to it. And the woman, she's like, I get that. She's in essence saying to Jesus, I know I'm not first in line. I have no claim to the Messiah's work. I don't have a seat at the table. I know I'm not worthy, but crumbs do fall to the dogs and let the crumbs fall to me. And so this unclean Gentile with an unclean daughter and an unclean demon in her daughter shows profound insight to Jesus' identity and mission and she does so with deep humility that is just in stark contrast to the Jewish leaders who hate and reject him. And so she's actually a model of faith for us, commended by Jesus. Look at verse 29. Then he told her, because of this reply, you may go. Or Matthew 15, 28 in Matthew's account, woman, you have great faith. The demon has left your daughter. So she went back to her home. She found her child lying on the bed and the demon was gone. This Gentile woman understands Israel's Messiah more than Israel. Her immediate, her persistent and now humble response shows her trust in the sufficiency of Jesus, even the surplus of Jesus, that what he provides will be abundant enough, yes, for Israel, but even for her too. And so salvation through the Messiah is going to the Gentiles. What is happening in this passage anticipates the floodgates opening as Jesus will send the apostles to the ends of the earth to proclaim the gospel to all nations. But she is not just anticipating the Gentile mission that's going to come. She is a model of faith. Faith that is humble confidence. Humble because she knows she has no merit to stand on. She knows she's not worthy. She's not deserving. She knows her heart is the source of the defilement and she comes to Jesus relying on his mercy and willingness. But in her humility, notice she does go to him. Her humility meets confidence through her assertiveness. Confidence that Jesus is able to provide, yes, but willing. Faith is humble confidence and her example I think is so helpful for us because I actually think we struggle with both of those ideas. We're a culture that stands on rights 
the right to self-define, desperate to assert our autonomy and independence, especially from any external authority, especially religious ones. And so like the Pharisees, as we heard last week, we hear the diagnosis of the heart and we just want to say, I'm offended. And we assume the problem is his. Or perhaps we just want to protest and say, well, I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good person. I've even been raised in a Christian home. The biggest problem I have is other people around me. And so inherent in us is this pride that thinks we know better than Jesus. And this Syrophoenician woman models not just accepting the problem of the heart and our own unworthiness, but the urgency and initiative that should follow as you see your need. And it seems to me that the more of the, so often that the more familiar you are with this, the more you know about the gospel, sometimes it just makes us so comfortable that it leads us to just become slow or indifferent to actually responding to Jesus. We say we've heard it all, we get it, we even agree, but there's no urgency. We sit in church week after week, even year after year, but we never actually respond to Jesus. We never repent and believe the good news, never baptise, never professing our faith, never actually coming to Jesus to acknowledge our need for a new heart that he's promised to give us by his spirit. And so this wonderful encounter of the Syrophoenician woman is an opportunity for us to stop as we continue through Mark and just say, have I responded with the same assertiveness, humility, and confidence as this woman. And her confidence is worth noting. You see, some of us are too proud to accept our unworthiness, while others of us are often so aware of our unworthiness that we have no confidence that Jesus would ever actually embrace us. You see, we think that because we know how bad our mistakes have been, we've seen the corruption of our hearts that we can't go to him. Well, the assurance we need, the confidence we need, actually comes in Jesus' next encounter as he continues his journey through the Gentile land. Uh, So pick it up with me, verse 31. He heads to the Sea of Galilee from uh, via Sidon. Now, if you've forgotten that map already, that's okay, but it's like a strange way to go, right? It's kind of like going from Melbourne to Canberra via Brisbane, Uh, But either way, he goes on a bit of a strange journey, but he lands in the Decapolis where he meets a man. Uh, But notice this time, he's a lot unlike the woman uh, because uh, she came with humble confidence. Uh, This man is actually brought to Jesus by others. Uh, And he hasn't heard about Jesus because, verse 32, he's deaf and he has difficulty speaking or a speech impediment, we would say. And so Jesus' time with him, it's, it's different. It's very personal and compassionate. You know, he takes him away from the crowd, verse 33. He puts his fingers in the man's ears. He spits and touches the man's tongue. It was pre-COVID, it's okay. But it's this deeply personal engagement that's really distinct from all the other healings in Mark's gospel so far. Why? Well, certainly not because Jesus had to do it this way. He doesn't do it because he needs it. Jesus does it because the man needs it. He's essentially giving him this kind of sign language of what's about to happen. 
Verse 34, looking up to heaven, he sighed deeply and said to him, Ephaphtha, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was loosened and he began to speak clearly. You see, much like the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, Jesus needs only to speak and it happens. The healing occurs, the demon is gone. And so this man, now healed, he can hear and he can speak, though he never asked for it. He didn't even know who Jesus was. But as he no doubt felt both relieved and overjoyed, I suspect that the first words he heard must have been surely surprising to him. Because Jesus goes from be opened to essentially be quiet in verse 36. You see, the man who can now speak and hear is commanded to silence. Uh, Perhaps it's not hugely surprising that he didn't do it. Uh, And the others don't do it either. The more Jesus told them to be quiet, the more they talked about it. And this is the kind of thing that happens repeatedly in Mark's gospel uh, that we've already seen in the opening chapters. And you might think, how could Jesus expect him to not talk about it? Why would Jesus want this to be kept a secret? Well, all throughout Jesus' ministry, the command to silence after the healing is all about understanding Jesus rightly. You see, he hasn't come to heal and cast out demons, but to save sinners. He's come to be the saviour that addresses our heart. He's come to proclaim the kingdom of God and call people to repentance and faith, faith modelled in the woman we just saw but faith that's kind of missing as the chapter finishes. Uh, As word spreads, Mark tells us the response in verse 37. He says, They were extremely astonished and said, He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf and the mute speak. What do you make of their response here? You see, throughout Mark, we've seen the disciples are close to Jesus, but they never understand him. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, they're always offended by him and despise him. A Gentile woman has embraced him with humble confidence. But this response in verse 37 is kind of somewhere in the middle, right? He does all things well, they say. I would call this classic, inoffensive Australian middle ground. You see, the Syrophoenician woman, she was the model response that we need But this crowd response is probably the one we're all too familiar with. It's this standoffish, know a bit about Jesus, he's a good guy response. Uh, You may know on the screen there, you might have heard about the recent controversy on the news program, The Project. Uh, Just one back for me, Ben. Uh, The presenters on The Project there were forced to give a fairly uh, awkward apology after a guest on the show, a comedian named Reuben Kay, uh, made what was deemed a highly inappropriate and offensive joke about Jesus. Uh, And of course, everybody's had their say. Was the apology necessary? Was the joke really that offensive? Everyone's had their say, but what has stood out to me so much about this is that as these journalists have commentated on it, they are all so certain about what Jesus would think of it. Uh, Take, for example, Dave Hughes. Uh, You may know him, very well-known Australian comedian. Uh, Dave used to be on the project like 10 years ago, 
Uh, and he was put in an awkward position while at Bondi Beach, he was telling this story on his radio show, he was at Bondi Beach and a kind of big intimidating guy came and said to him, you know, are you on the project and are you against Jesus? And Dave tells on his radio show about how he had to talk to this guy at great lengths to convince him that he too was a Christian man. I told him, says Dave, I went to a Christian brother's college and I've even taken the Eucharist. That's the Lord's Supper. It doesn't really sound like humble confidence in Jesus. You see, it's the kind of response that's all too familiar with for us. Knowing all about Jesus, being comfortable with Jesus, but not actually knowing Jesus. No taking his diagnosis seriously, no turning to him in humble confidence, just sitting back making some broad assessments. He does everything well. And we read their response in verse 37. I actually think we're meant to think here, what an understatement. He does everything well. And I think Mark wants us to see the inadequacy of that statement by quoting their conclusion. He's done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. They see the wonder of the miracle, but they have no insight into the one who did it. Hopefully those words of verse 37 are actually really familiar to you because they were the words of promise in Isaiah 35 that we heard in our first reading. And Mark has already drawn us back to uh, Isaiah 35 uh, and made the connection between that passage and the healing. Uh, It's a little bit technical, but you'll follow. In verse 32, the man that was brought to Jesus was described as having difficulty speaking. And the Greek word he uses is used nowhere else in the New Testament, but it is used once in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in... Isaiah 35, and I've put it up there for you there in verse 6. So Mark is connecting Isaiah 35 to what Jesus is doing here. And in that passage, God promised his people that the day would come when God himself was going to show up. In fact, in verse 2, he's going to show up and give glory to Lebanon, the region of Tyre, to save and deliver his people. Verse 4, say to the cowardly, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. God will come, promises Isaiah, to open blind eyes, open deaf ears and the mute, those with difficulty speaking, will sing for joy. And so although they have no idea in their kind of standoffish Jesus is a nice guy response, the crowd are declaring to us that day has come. God is here to save just as he promised. And so even though that he does everything well response is kind of familiar to us, Clearly we see that it falls well short of who Jesus really is and what he's come to do and therefore falls short of the faith that he's calling for. And so Jesus' command to the man, it makes total sense, doesn't it? 
There's nothing helpful about getting a distorted small view of Jesus that leads you to give a small response other than faith. And so the command for silence continues until the death and resurrection. And then the floodgates open as all people in all nations must hear and must come to know the crucified yet risen Messiah. Hear about him and trust him. Turn to him in humble confidence that accepts your unworthiness but embraces the greatness and mercy and willingness of Jesus to save you. Tim Keller helpfully summarises, in the gospel you see you are more wicked than you ever believed, but at the same time more loved, accepted and included than you dare to hope. And so as we see the immense contrast between the 12 disciples and their confusion, the hatred of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the faith of the Syrophoenician woman and the polite middle ground of the crowd, We're being urged by Mark to consider our own response to Jesus' radical diagnosis of our heart. How are you actually responding to Jesus? Are you offended? Are you confused? Are you holding back? I'm actually pretty similar. There would be a, a, a range of responses in this group right now, just as we've seen in Mark's gospel. I imagine some of you are thinking you just don't actually have enough information to work on. You're confused. But will you stay there? For others, information is not so much the problem. You know all about Jesus. Maybe you've been raised in the church, served on rosters, gone to see you, but Your response is still more like the standoffish crowd than clinging to Jesus with all of your life. And so I wonder if this is you tonight, where are you tonight? Yes, you know lots about Jesus. You might be impressed by Jesus. You see the goodness, but you prefer to stay distant, just be amazed rather than humble dependence that clings to him. And I actually think that's where most of us like to sit especially if we've been around church most of our life, familiar enough with Jesus to feel like we get it, but distant enough to never actually have to change or confront the sin in our heart. And I think that's where we like to be because that's where I chose to be for all of my life as I was raised in the church, comfortable with my indifferent and distant response. And it's the common response I see in so much of our youth ministry here. And so there is nothing more helpful for us to do right now, perhaps nothing more important than to just stop and ask, why are we holding back? Why would we hold back? Why not cling to Jesus in humble confidence? But remember I said that this passage not only uh, gives us the response we're familiar with, it actually assures us that we can turn to God in confidence. Uh, Because Mark points us to the uh, the fulfillment of Isaiah 35, that God himself was going to come and save. But as you listen to Isaiah 35, you might actually be thinking, where's the retribution? God promised that that he was going to come and save, but also judge. Vengeance is coming. Retribution is coming. But we haven't really seen that, have we? Jesus doesn't smite the Pharisees who hate him. 
doesn't judge and reject his slow disciples. And why? Well, because he's actually come not to bring judgment, but actually to bear it on himself. He's come to save the unclean, those with sinful hearts, by taking the judgment they deserve on himself. Hebrews 9. Just as, a, uh, just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear sins, the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation for those who are waiting for him. Now, you might recall that Mark's gospel essentially has two halves, answering two questions. Uh, in chapters 1 to 8, the question really is just, who is Jesus? And then the second question is, why did he come in chapters 9 to 16? And we are approaching the middle of Mark's gospel, the end of that culminating question. We're getting clarity on it with here the Gentile woman and especially in chapter 8 with Peter's confession, Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, just as God promised, God come to save. And he's come to save through his death and resurrection. And so we are safe as we come to him in humble confidence because he knows the sin of our heart, yet has come to bear the judgment it deserves. This is something that's going to come into clear focus from chapter 8 onwards, and there's some references in your handout. Jesus is the saviour of Jew and Gentile, the saviour that all people need, and so for those of us that have come to Jesus in humble confidence, those of us that have seen our unworthiness and thrown ourselves upon the crucified and risen Saviour, I think there is an important question for us. Uh, the faith of the Syrophoenician woman anticipates the gospel going to the, to the nations, to the Gentiles, like us here tonight. And we meet this people in verse 36 who just won't keep quiet about Jesus even though they're told to, and even though they don't really get who Jesus is and how wonderful he is. They don't get Jesus, but they won't stop talking about him. And so how much more should we, we who know Jesus, who have been captured by the beauty of Jesus in his death and resurrection, how much more should we long to throw open the floodgates for people to come and know him and find the salvation they need. As I read and read and read and thought about verse 36 this week, I couldn't help but just see, like, it's a tragic irony, right? People commanded by Jesus to be silent kept on talking, while so many of us, myself included, are prone to silence despite being urged to tell everyone. And so if their small view of Jesus led to proclamation, how much more should we who know Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plans and purposes, who knows Jesus' death covers all of our sin, who know Jesus is the risen saviour for all who call on him, how much more should we proclaim him even to the most unlikely people we probably think would never come to him? John Dixon says, if there is one Lord to whom all people belong and owe their allegiance, the people of that Lord must promote this reality everywhere. 
Has the wonder of salvation so captured your heart that you long that people would come to be saved by him? Will we tell them? If Jesus' diagnosis of the human heart is right, then we must be eager that all might meet the one who is not only able, but willing to cure it. What holds you back from embracing a saviour like that? What would hold you back from proclaiming a saviour like that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Uh, Not the saviour we asked for, not the saviour we deserve, but the saviour we need. Father, please grant us now to respond to him in faith, in humble confidence. Give us clarity where there is confusion, courage where there is fear, repentance where there is pride. Please work in us a deep conviction of the need for salvation for all people. People we know, people in our life. And please grant us to patiently, perseveringly and urgently call them to trust in the Saviour they need, the Saviour who is willing. Father, we ask that you would do this for the salvation of many, but also for the glory of your Son. For we ask in his name. Amen.